Jesus once asked some fishermen to leave their nets and follow him. This meant they had to change their identity and their focus. They had to learn the ways of a new work, to connect their hearts to a new mission, to build new relationships, to give their time and resources, and allow a new character to be built within them. We may not be fishermen, but Jesus still calls us to and disciples us in a new life. So, will you leave your net when Jesus asks you? We can't always control what happens to us. We can usually control how we respond to it. Now, there are ups and downs. There are good days, there are bad days. There are days where you don't respond the way that you really wanted to. You need a mulligan, you need a second chance. That, that's real. But I'm talking about over the long haul, generally speaking, we can control how we react to our sometimes uncontrollable situations. When I was growing up, uh, let's say I wasn't any more than high school, in the church that I attended at the same time, two people got cancer. And it was tragic in both cases. They both eventually died from the cancer that they had. One person who had been a leading member of the church, someone that I really respected, became embittered and nasty and mean. Drove his family away. It became very difficult to be around him or to care about him. The other person was this model of grace, this testimony of faith, and people wanted to gather around here, around her, um, like bees attracted to flowers. It, it just could not have been more starkly different how these two people handled a tragic situation in their lives. Which one of those two people would you want to be? Which one of those two people would God want you to be? So now, imagine that you have some friends over for dinner and one of your friends shows up, uh, you open the door, and they're standing there with a fun little gift, maybe some flowers or something, maybe they bring a bottle of wine with them. They're really happy to be, be there. They come in, they engage, they talk about how great dinner is, they have a really good time, and on the way out the door, they thank you for a really wonderful evening. You invite somebody else, and you go to the door, and you open the door and welcome them in, and they say, I had another engagement tonight, but I really felt obligated to come here. It sort of takes you back a little bit. Um, you invite people to grab some food, and this person turns to you after they look at dinner and say, is this what you're having? I really liked what you had last time. I don't really care for this at all. They don't really engage in conversation around the dinner table expect, except to complain about something. And when they leave, they tell you that they really didn't enjoy the other people that were there. Which of the two guests gets reinvited? Which one do you want to be? And which one does God want you to be? So there's this church that redid their facilities and they made it really nice. And after they finished and they had this really nice facility, they decided that they needed to severely limit its use because they figured the more use it got, the more it would get dinged and get used and the sooner they might have to redo it again. So they made a big list about who could use the building, how and when, and a much longer list about who couldn't use the building. The building remained beautiful and unused. 
another church redid their facilities and invited everyone to use it. And when the wall got its first inevitable ding, they all went, eh, it happens. The building still looks pretty good, and it gets used a lot. Which church would you want to be? Which church does God want us to be? Now, those are all true stories. I've only changed the names to protect the guilty. What I wanted to illustrate is that we can choose our attitudes. We can choose how we're going to respond to things. We can choose who we're going to be in a situation. We can choose to care about more than just how things affect us. We can choose to respond in a way that would honor God. In the sermon series, we're talking about discipleship. Discipleship is basically to become more like Jesus. Not just on Sunday morning, but to become more like Jesus when you're grumpy, or when you're disappointed, or when you're peopled out, or when you're at a dinner party you don't really want to be at, or when you're going through a rough patch, or when things didn't go your way. Because if you're just fair-weather Jesus-y, I'm not sure you're Jesus-y at all. If you're just fair-weather Jesus-y, it's no surprise that you can't seem to find any joy in your life. We can choose how we're going to respond. And that's what the Apostle Paul is getting at in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4 today. Paul writes, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. The word begins with the infamous therefore. And like I always say, whenever there's a therefore, you need to ask, what is it therefore? So therefore, it's always a connecting word, and it talks about what just went before. And because of what Paul just said, he's like, therefore, so now do this thing. So what did he just talk about? Basically, he talked about that life is going to be tough, and that some days circumstances will be hard. And he gives some examples from his life. For instance, in this story, Paul is in prison. And that's pretty dire no matter how you slice it, especially when you take into account the prisons in that day didn't have some of the niceties like we do now. Like, for instance, nobody fed you. The only way you got fed is if somebody liked you enough to actually bring food to you. So that's pretty rough. Additionally, there were other friends, people who knew Paul, other people, people who knew Paul, who probably should have been his friends, but they were taking advantage of the fact that Paul was in prison and they were making him out to look bad, hoping that people would follow them instead. I mean, they were saying things like, how can Paul be a representative of God when he's in prison? After all, where there's smoke, there's got to be fire. So Paul is, cont is contending with that. And then expanded out another circle, and not just Paul, but the entire church in Philippi is experiencing persecution. So how are they going to react to this? How would you react? How does Paul react? And in this situation, 
Paul's prayer is that even if he's in prison, even if his friends are falling away, even if people are saying things about him that aren't true, Paul's prayer is that Jesus would be exalted and that the kingdom of God would be advanced. Paul pretty much says, it's actually pretty cool that I'm here in prison because it's emboldened other people to share the gospel. And I've actually been able to talk to people about Jesus that I never would have been able to talk to if I weren't in prison. Talk about making lemonade out of lemon. Life happens, and you gotta make a choice. You can become embittered, you can become grumpy and unpleasant, or you can live as best as you can to the glory of God. And all of that is going on beforehand, and in the therefore. So because of that, then Paul gives four if statements. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion. Well, first of all, what do you do with that if? It really should be read as since. Or if you don't want to read it as since, read it as if and you do. So if you have encouragement from being united with Christ, and you do, or since you have comfort from his love, since you have common sharing in the spirit, since you have received tenderness and compassion, because of those things, you are or you will experience suffering. When you do, remember those things. Remember the encouragement that you have in being united with Christ. I mean, think about this for a second. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you know Jesus, how do you find that encouraging? How is it helpful to know that Jesus is present with you? One of the main encouragements that Paul brings out here about knowing Jesus is the fact that, you know, writing from prison, Paul reminds us that Jesus suffers with us. This is an important point. I mean, we share in Jesus' sufferings, but Jesus also shares in ours. So whatever you're facing, whatever darkness you're walking through, Jesus feels your pain. He's with you in it. Uh, I mean, think of the first example of the people with cancer. One of them couldn't see their way to knowing God was there with them. The second was transformed by being encouraged by the fact that Jesus was present in the suffering, even in the cancer. Then it goes on to say, remember that you're comforted by God's love, which has been poured out on you. If you think back to you know, high school and, uh, or college psychology and Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right above the basic needs that you need just to survive is the need to love and be loved. In Christ, you are loved, you are valued, you belong to God, you have an anchor that helps you on Maslow's hierarchy of needs to have what you need, all of that before you get up in the morning. Remember that, you're comforted by God's love. And then remember that you share in the Spirit. That's important because the Holy Spirit is the one that unites our hearts to God and unites our hearts to one another. And being a part of a body where the Holy Spirit brings us together reminds us that we're not alone particularly when we suffer, when we lose a loved one, when we go through cancer, when difficult financial things are going on, oftentimes we experience the presence of God through the presence of God's people. We're not alone. We belong to a group of people. Uh, one of the greatest examples this I ever saw is one year we were in Lake Tahoe for uh, a couple of weeks on vacation, 
And there was a little Episcopal church that was down the street. It was Episcopal church in the woods. It was absolutely beautiful. Little tiny, maybe 10 uh, pews hewn out of, uh, you know, the fir trees, really rustic. And we gathered there together. We were in the parking lot of people just sort of filed in there and sat with people. And we sang songs to a really bad recording and heard a fair to mediocre sermon and uh, shared communion together. And something happened. Because as we were leaving that place, everybody who came as strangers left as brothers and sisters. I mean, people, as they were driving out of the parking lot, were waving at one another or wishing each other that they would have a good day. I mean, these people that an hour before we didn't even know existed, now because of the Holy Spirit, we felt a connection to us. Like, we're in the club, and everybody waved. It was just this cool moment. Where I, was, where I was reminded the transformation that happens in Christ through the Holy Spirit. And if you think about this, you know, he talks about the encouragement that has been Jesus, the love of God, sharing in the Holy Spirit. He's introducing this Trinitarian formula. You're united to Christ, you're loved by God, you share in the Holy Spirit. And it actually comes from a fairly common benediction. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you and remain with you always. That's what Paul is picking up here in Philippians. It's Paul's way of saying, you are surrounded by, you are held by, you are cared by the Trinity. And then there's this last one. If you have received tenderness and compassion. I kind of like this. This is kind of Paul's last flourish. And uh, scholars believe that since Paul is dictating the letter and not writing it, they think he kind of gets carried away in his own rhetoric and he tosses that in about the goodness of God. And the reason that they think that it does that is because it kind of breaks up the nice little Trinitarian thing that he's got going on there. So we've got four ifs, senses, remember what God has done for you. Remember that encouragement. So these ifs are the starting point. We have been changed by encountering Jesus. That's what makes us different from the Rotary Club or the Friends of the Library or any other community organization. We're not united by a mutual goal. We're not bound together by ideology or politics. We're not gathered together to promote a social issue. We're united by the Holy Spirit to Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, ascended into heaven and coming again. We're changed not because we have a certain outlook on life, but we have new life in Christ. We're different, not because the country in which we were born or the color of our skin, but because we belong to a different kingdom and have a different way of understanding what's going on around us because we know who God is. And in Christ, we know he's holding all things together and making all things new. Because of that, we're different. Our responses are different. Our priorities are different. Our attitudes are different. Our character is different because we're being changed into the image and likeness of Jesus. So since all of these four things are true about us as individuals and a church, Paul goes on to say, shorthand, love one another. Verse 2, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of mind. Paul says, this is what I pray for you. This is what I want most for all of you, that you would love one another and be characterized by these things. Be like-minded. What that means is set your minds on the same thing. Have a certain mindset. Be able to say, as a church, we're of one mind about 
this thing. There's no disagreement about what's important here. Paul's putting this emphasis, this emphasis on a unity of purpose. So here at Harbor Covenant Church, over our three campuses, we have 700 plus people. And with 700 plus people, I guarantee we have at least 750 opinions about things. But we agree on the most important things, and that's what we focus on. I, every week when I prepare my sermon, and every Sunday when I look in the mirror as I shave, I say to myself, sometimes out loud, nobody cares what you think. Nobody's coming to hear your opinion today. They're coming to hear what the Word of God says. That's what your job is. And I remind myself of that every Sunday morning, because I have opinions, I have preferences, but that's not why you show up on a Sunday morning. And at our best, we're all able to do that and seek what the best thing is for what God has for us as a group of people. Uh, one of my previous churches was really um, great people, but the thing that motivated mo them most, the thing that steered all ministry was memorial gifts. And this was a big thing in that church. Um, people, often, somebody would die and somebody would give a memorial gift to the church, which was neither good nor bad in and of itself. But oftentimes those memorial gifts would come with a string attached to them. Like you have to do this thing in order to get or keep the money. And I always used to say to people, we had, we had a, a foyer or an arthex, much like the smaller side of the church. And I always said to people, if we got a memorial gift that said, we are donating a tree that must be planted indoors in the middle of the foyer so that everybody has to squeeze around the corner to get it, we would plant the stupid tree there. Because the most important thing to us was the wishes of dying people. That's not the most important thing. And that's not what we do around here. We have a lot of opinions. Maybe you'd love a tree in the foyer, but it's not the most important thing. We have unanimity around what's most important. We have the same mindset. That's what Paul prays for us. And then he says, have the same love. Now in chapter one, verse nine, he prays that their love would abound more and more. And the love theme should surprise no one. I mean, it's all the way through the Bible. I mean, Jesus even says, this is how people will know you're my disciples, not because of what you believe, but because of what you do, how you love one another. So love isn't lacking in the community. What Paul is pointing out is that love is in danger of being eroded in Philippi by internal friction and not having the same purpose, not having the same mindset. And so Paul wants them to keep loving one another at the forefront of their mind and not to get off onto secondary issues because the purpose of the church is at stake. Then he goes on, being one in spirit and mind. What Paul's doing there is really linking feeling and thinking together. Do all of these things with your whole body, your whole being, be committed to this, to the unity of the body, to have, being like-minded with your whole body. That's the mindset that we need to have. Now then, Paul goes on to the mindset that we're supposed to guard against and not have. Verse three, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. So guard against this mindset. Guard against a mindset of being selfish. Being selfish says, I want what I want. This is my right. Dear Lord, how often have I heard that over the last couple of years? I will take what I want. I will do what I want, 
And ultimately, it doesn't matter to me how it affects other people. Guard against that selfishness, because that selfishness is really at the heart of all human sin, from the very first sin all the way up to today. And it's that selfishness that keeps the world broken. And this might be the greatest threat to the unity in the body of Christ, is people who only care about what they want and not about other people. So he's like, guard against this selfishness because we're trying to live into the character of Jesus, become more like Jesus. This is not the way God treats us. God is not selfish. This is what chapter two is gonna go on to talk about. God gives and gives and gives. So what does selfishness look like in the church? Selfishness looks like I'm taking my ball and going home because I don't like this decision. I don't like this thing. I don't like this person. I want to go to church at 11, not at 1030. Selfishness looks like I want things my way or I will disrupt things until I get them my way. Selfishness in the church is I will only see how things affect me and how, not how they might affect other people or how they might affect the overall mission. Selfishness sometimes is I will just descend into grumpiness. Guard against selfishness. Guard against vain conceit. This is actually, you know, words we don't use in English, but it's a technical Roman term. It's actually one of those phrases that is used all over the Greco-Roman world at this time. And it's used to describe people who think too highly of themselves. I mean, there are some people who really are awesome. This is not the word you use for those people. This is the word you use for people who are deluded into thinking they really are all of that. Um, one of my favorite, most quotable people besides Winston Churchill was Golda Meir. And Golda Meir once told one of her advisors, don't be so humble because you're not that great. That's what this term has to do with. Uh, people who have made, who want other people to see how great they are when they really are not that great. Guard against that. Verse three, rather in humility value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the other. Being humble, uh, Christian humility is not about being a carpet for everyone to walk all over. It basically is acknowledging that other people exist, that other people matter, and that they matter as much as I do. So be humble, value others, and don't look only to your own interests, which is just kind of how I defined humility, but look to the interests of others. One of my favorite stories about this is one day, Rachel, our oldest daughter, came home from a, a, a missions trip experience with a size triple X sweatshirt. And I'm like, Rachel, three of you can't wear that sweatshirt. Why did you get a triple X sweatshirt? And Rachel is like, because they put out a box and everybody went and took one, and I wanted to make sure everyone got what fit them, and I ended up with this extra, extra, extra large. And I'm like, that's awesome. I, I would rather you ended up with an extra, extra large sweatshirt than trample over somebody to make sure that you got a small instead. That's a great illustration. So a couple of points to make about what Paul is talking about here. The first is keep on mission. I feel like as a church, we're on mission. Harbor Covenant is on mission. And Paul is calling the Philippians to be on mission and to stay on mission. What will keep the mission from happening? 
The mission will stop happening if we quit loving each other, if we start being selfish, if we stop trying to be like Jesus, if we stop trying to have the character of Jesus formed in us and either go back to the way, the character that we used to have, or just plateau where we are. That will kill the mission. Those are the things we have to guard against. And then I thought about this. Be a cup filler. And this came to me because in one of the, um, one of the commentaries I was reading by a guy named Gordon Fee, in, this, uh, in the sentence where Paul says, make my joy com complete, Gordon Fee makes this note. Thus, they will fill his cup of joy to the full as they have complete love for one another. By loving one another, they fill Paul's cups up. And I think about how wonderful it is to be around people who fill my cup up. As, a, as opposed to people who just drain it. There's this old, old song. It's based on John chapter 4, and it rang through my mind, and some of you have heard this before. And the words are, Fill my cup, Lord. I lift it up, Lord. Come and quench this thirsting of my soul. Bread of heaven, fill me till I want no more. Fill my cup, fill it up, and make me whole. That's the opportunity that we have. Lots of people are walking around with empty cups, even people in our own congregation. And we can choose to fill people's cups, or we can choose to leave them empty, or do what we can to empty them. Be a cup filler. We are changed by the encouragement that we have from God. Lots of times, you're gonna be the only Jesus people see or interact with. We can be part of the experience of God in other people's experiences. Be a cup filler. Choose the character of Christ. We all have a choice about what our character is going to look like. And this is a good opportunity for the one in 321. Who helps you to respond in the best way? Who helps you to have a good attitude? Who helps correct your perspective? Who says to you, stop complaining? Who helps you say, I'm going to love and care for people versus I'm going to stew about everything I find irritating? Now, understand. I'm not talking about complaining about how bad people are at driving. Anytime you want to complain about that, come see me. In general, choose the character of Christ. And maintain the connection to the body that Jesus has placed you in. You matter. You matter to this body. You matter to the people that you rub shoulders with. You matter to the people that you go out and see on an everyday basis because God sends you there. And when you choose to absent yourself from the group, when you choose to absent yourself from being able to be used by God, you do damage to the body of Christ and to the mission of God. On our annual meeting uh, a couple of Sunday evenings ago, we had a time where we asked what I call the prayer ladies, uh, Kathy Gates, Dalen Mason, Sandy Anderson, and Joe Cochran, who have all been here pretty much from the beginning. A couple of them are charter members, and the rest came just a little bit later. And I asked them, after you've been in this church for 40 years, after you have loved people here, after you served people, what still excites you about what God is doing among us? And one of the things that came up over and over, and you'll have a chance to watch the video because we're going to post it, is that this is a place where people love each other. This is a place where people care for each other. And that's what excites them. And that's what's been unique for them the entire time they have been in this church. Now, we can change that anytime. We can quit being loving. 
we can get involved in secondary issues. We can choose to be like any other community club. We can descend into selfishness and grumpiness, or we can cling to loving one another and keeping the main thing the main thing. I don't know about you, but I know that would make my joy complete. So let me ask you three questions. What are some ways you have experienced encouragement from God? Number two, would people say you are generally encouraging or discouraging? And number three, what is one step you can take to grow into the character of Jesus?